Father, you are perfectly holy and perfectly loving all at the same time. Lord, there is no tension in your being. You are who you are. And Lord, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in the pages of the scriptures. Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts to hear, um, that you would give us minds to understand, um, Lord, and you would give us wills to act on what you are saying. Lord, please grant me grace. Um, help me to be clear um, for the good of your people and for your glory. We thank you for this time together. Be with those who can't be with us this morning, who are sick, um, ailing. We pray that you would heal them and pray that their trust and their confidence would be in you and in you alone. Bless them and help us to love them throughout the week. We ask these things. Bless this time now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you can go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 will be the text that will introduce our time uh, this morning. And uh, when you turn there, you can go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We stand um, here for the reading of God's Word because we know when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. And so we want to honor and respect God's Word, and so we stand together. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered into my name, there I am among them. You may be seated. Well, we're finishing our series. We've been taking a break from Matthew, uh, and we've been taking a break from Matthew for this whole month, really, of January, talking about the church and church membership and the ordinances and how they all interrelate to each other. So uh, next week, uh, one of the other elders will be preaching, uh, we'll be on vacation, but then uh, the week after, we will return to Matthew and plugging along through the scriptures verse by verse. But, uh, th so this is our last uh, message in this series on church and church membership. And so we're going to finish up with church discipline this morning, church discipline. But before we do that, let's review where we've been. Uh, I was just talking with someone this morning that really all of what we've been doing over the last few weeks, it's a cumulative case. It all fits together. It is all fits together because this is what we believe the scriptures teach on how Jesus has designed the church, how it's supposed to work in a very structural way. So we started with what is the church? Answering that question, what is the church? And so I've got some uh, those definitions on that page in your notes, but they also should be on the screen behind me. We said the universal church is the assembly of all new covenant members who are genuine disciples of Christ the King, who are citizens of the kingdom from heaven, who are priests for God in the world, and who together form a temple for the display and enjoyment of the glory of God. That is the universal church. It is the new covenant assembly. It is uh, composed of new covenant members, those who truly know God through faith, through repentance and faith in Christ. But the universal church, you don't get to see the universal church yet. It won't be seen until the future, until the end of time, when every person from every tribe and tongue and nation, we see this in Revelation, is gathered together in the ultimate assembly, and that's when the universal church will be gathered. So how do you see the church now? Well, you see it in the local church, the local church. And so we defined, or not, um, not me, but Lehman and Hansen in their book, Rediscover Church, they gave a good definition, it says this, a local church is a group of Christians who assemble as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ the King, to affirm one another as his citizens through the ordinances, and to display God's own holiness and love 
through a unified and diverse people in all the world, following the teaching and example of elders. That's what a local church is. It is an embassy of the future. Uh, Jesus will one day rule over the, all the nations, over the whole world, from a throne in Jerusalem, and the church is an embassy of that future kingdom. It is an embassy in enemy territory. It is where the citizens gather. That's the notion of church. Church just means assembly. We're assembling together as new covenant citizens, as kingdom citizens to uh, help one another to grow, to help one another to follow Jesus, our King. Which leads us right into church membership. What is church membership? And we said this, church membership is a church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's profession of faith and discipleship, combined with the Christian's submission to the church and its oversight. It's a two-way street. Uh, we are a covenant people, and so in membership, really an individual is covenanting with a local church and saying, hey, I'm submitting to you, all of the assembly, uh, to oversee my discipleship. I want to grow and follow Christ. Will you help me? And the church on the other side is saying, yes, we will oversee your discipleship. We will affirm your discipleship. We will help you to grow. And just like the universal church is an assembly of people, the local church is an assembly of people. And so we could say this, and we had the diagram, there's a visual on the slides behind me, that a local church is its membership. Uh, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5, we're going to uh, revisit that passage this morning, but in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about an inside and an outside to the church. Uh, the boundary between the inside and outside is membership, and the collection of the people, the collection of members, is the local church. So Faith Bible Church is its members, is its members. And then we said this, we asked this question, it's like, okay, well, if that's what membership is, how are baptism and membership connected? How are baptism and membership connected? And we said this, Baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water, and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking off him or her from the world. Uh, again, if, if membership is a two-way street, then baptism is a two-way street. It is the means that Christ himself has given to visibly portray someone becoming a disciple. There is a spiritual reality in which Jesus makes someone, through the, baptism, through the work of the Holy Spirit, makes someone a disciple, and then that faith goes public in the waters of baptism and visibly participates in the local church. Or to shorthand it, and we've got another visual on the slide behind us, baptism joins one to many. It joins one to many. It joins one new disciple to the many disciples who are together in the local church. And then last week we asked this question, how are the Lord's Supper and membership connected? How are the Lord's Supper and membership connected? And we've got another definition the Lord's Supper is a local church partaking together of bread and wine or grape juice as the sign of the new covenant, remembering Christ's death for them, recognizing one another as members of the same local body, and anticipating the Lord's Supper with Christ and the universal church in his future kingdom. Shorthand, the Lord's Supper is the sign of the new covenant. And so we welcome new disciples in through baptism and then together as a body, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 11, as a body, as a body of members, we uh, look back to who made us who we are. We look back to Christ's sacrifice as the ultimate Passover lamb, to the one who died for our sins and rose again, who made us his people. We look back but we look around us, we look around us to the local body, to the other people that Christ has rescued and ransomed. And then we also look forward. Even as Jesus said, I'm not going to drink this again until the kingdom comes, we also anticipate that ultimate feast with the whole church of God, the messianic feast in the future that Jesus himself will preside over, which is why we call it the Lord's Supper. And we gave another visual, or adding to our little visual, uh, we say this, that if baptism joins one to many, the Lord's Supper joins many into one. Because there is one bread, we who are many are 
one body. It is an ongoing remembrance. That's what signs of covenants are. We can look at them again and again and again and see, yes, this is who God has made us as a people. And now the question is, and, and, and we remember in all of this, what's at stake? What's at stake? Why have we been spending so much time on the church and church membership? Because it's this, God is very interested in a distinct, definable, and visible people. He was interested in that in the Old Testament. He's just as interested in it in the New Testament. Really, you could frame it like this. Uh, We're trying to put the gospel on display, not just as individuals. There's only so much we can do as individuals, but Christ has designed the church to come together and as an embassy, as a people, as a beacon, as a temple, as a holy priesthood, we are designed together to put the gospel on display to be a beacon to the world. So even as our culture does what it does, we are a different culture. The culture of the kingdom identified, defined, made visible by the ordinances and by what we're going to talk about this morning by church discipline. Church discipline. Really, you could think of discipline as the complement to the ordinances. They work together. All of these things are intertwined, and they work together. And I hope to show that to you as we go along. So our big question for this morning is this. How are church discipline and membership connected? How are church discipline and membership connected? And uh, we, we're going to answer this with four, answering four other questions. Uh, we're going to answer this by answering four other questions. And so the first question that we need to answer is this. What is, we, what is the practice of church discipline? What is the practice of church discipline? In other words, what do we mean by that? We, we use the phrase church discipline. What does that mean? What are we talking about? And so to define that and to understand that, there are two primary go-to texts in the New Testament that talk about discipline. There are actually several texts in the New Testament that reference church discipline but the two that primarily define it for us are Matthew 18, 15 through 20, and 1 Corinthians 5. So we're going to look at both of those. We've already looked at those passages in this series. We're going to look at them again. We're, let's start with Corinthians, excuse me, let's start with Matthew 18, uh, 15, which we just read a couple minutes ago. So in context, we'll get there in Matthew. So I'm going to full on, do, do a full exegesis of this passage. Uh, months in the months coming but in context jesus is talking to his disciples as he's preparing to go to the cross to inaugurate the new covenant which is going to establish his community and he he's giving them instructions in matthew 18 of how do you live together as a community how do you live together as a new covenant community and specifically he's dealing with issues of sin and how do you forgive sin and how do you deal with sin and so it's, centered, it's not just Matthew 18, 15 through 20 that's in this passage. Uh, right after this, it talks about how do you forgive a brother, et cetera, et cetera. But for our purposes this morning, we're just going to see what does Jesus have to say for how do you deal with sin in the community in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. So let's read it again. If your brother sins, now your translation might say your brother sins against you. Uh, some translations include against you, some don't. There's a textual issue in the manuscript. Some manuscripts have it, some manuscripts don't. So is this talking about some, a personal sin and affront, or is this talking about sin in general? In either case, the same principles apply, but I think he's talking about sin in general. So if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. So this is the idea that as disciples, as members, we've talked about this before, we are committed to overseeing one another's discipleship. So uh, the reality is, though, as, even though as redeemed people by Jesus, even though we have the gospel applied to us, we believe the gospel, we believe Jesus, we're, we stand holy in God's eyes through Jesus, we're still sinning. We still sin. It's a reality, and the New Testament acknowledges that. So what do you do if you see a brother sin? Maybe that's personally someone sinned against me, or maybe it's just that, ooh, someone is doing, uh, they're, they're involved, they're claiming to follow Christ, but they're involved in something that negates that. You see, Jesus, and we saw this in the Sermon on the Mount, he has a code of conduct for his disciples. Uh, 
Jesus accepts sinners, but he doesn't leave them there. He accepts sinners, but he doesn't leave them there. He changes them into the culture of kingdom righteousness that you see in Matthew 5 and 7 and in other places. And so the thing is, uh, you can have someone who's claiming to be a Christian, who's claiming to be a brother, and yet, wait a minute, what you just did goes against what Jesus taught us. It goes against what Jesus taught us. So how does the community respond? Well, it starts with a one-on-one basis a one-on-one basis. As a member in the local church, I see a fellow member sin in a, particular, uh, in a particular way. It is loving for me to go to that person and saying, brother, you have sinned, and I can see it. Here's what it looked like in your life. And uh, oftentimes this is a pattern, and you can point to the pattern that's going on in someone's life. Brother, you are walking in a way that dishonors Christ. You're not walking as a disciple. Get back on the narrow path that leads to the narrow gate into the kingdom of heaven. So in a sense, church discipline starts in a very ordinary and regular way. Uh, It should be regular in the sense that these are hallway conversations. They're conversations over lunch and meals and saying, I've noticed this thing in you, uh, and it contradicts what Jesus told us. Please don't keep going that way. Come back. And you notice the motivation here you go, to, um, you go to your brother between you and him alone, you tell him his fault, you convict him and say, here's, let me lay out the evidence and show you. It's not just, I feel this way about you. No, there's evidence to show this is what has happened. But notice the goal. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The goal in such confrontation is gaining the brother. We want the person to say, Okay, you're claiming to follow Christ, but you're not walking that way. Come back. Come back onto that narrow path leading into the kingdom of heaven. We want the brother gained. And that's a one-on-one. Well, what if he doesn't listen? Well, Jesus goes on, verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is an Old Testament standard, it's a biblical standard. It's not just one person can bring evidence to convict someone. That's not how it works. If someone doesn't listen, then you bring two or three others along, you confront again. So we've just increased the intensity of confrontation. We're laying out, look, brother, this is how your life is contradicting what Jesus told us to do. And now you have two or three others saying the same thing and saying, brother, sister, don't keep going along this path. If you do, you're not on the narrow path into the kingdom of heaven. You're on the broad path into the kingdom of darkness, into destruction, ultimately. And, and, and the goal, it's not stated here explicitly, but we know what's the goal in this. We want to gain the brother or sister. We want them on that path. Well, what happens if he doesn't listen? If he refuses, now it's escalated. The, the language now is not just he's not listening, he's refusing. It's stubborn refusal to listen to correction. If he refuses to listen to them, that's the two or three, tell it to the church. The church is what? It's an assembly of people. It's an assembly of people gathered in Jesus' name. Tell it to the assembly. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, so now you've got the whole church. We had one-on-one, uh, we had one on, two or three, now we've got one on the whole assembly who knows this person, who is responsible for this person, who's helping to oversee the discipleship of this person. And now we're bringing the whole community, the local church, to bear on this person saying, brother, we're pleading with you. Please don't keep going this direction. You're walking in conflict with what Jesus taught us. Come back. And yet, ultimately, if, he do, if, if, if at any point, he could repent and come back. But what if he refuses again? If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? Well, in Jesus' day, and the people he's talking to, they tr- treated foreigners, Gentiles, and tax collectors as outside the community, outside the community of faith. So he's saying you remove them from the community. You view them as no longer as a brother, but as outside the community. 
or to frame it in terms of what we've been talking about, you remove them from membership. You remove them from membership. You say, we can no longer affirm your discipleship because we've been confronting you and confronting you, and we can lay out before you in, uh, with clear evidence that you are walking contradictorily. You're calling yourself a Christian. You're calling yourself a follower of Christ, and yet your life contradicts that fact, and we can no longer affirm your discipleship. And then Jesus reinforces what he just said with some some language that we've been talking about quite a bit in this series, and he says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Remember what we said about that language. What does that language mean? It, it was used in Matthew 16. It's used here. And what we said is, uh, you see a similar sort of language in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, when people make uh, judgments about, here's God's word, Here's God's law, and here how it is binding on you. We use that language with contracts, don't we? This contract is binding on you in such and such a way. Or this contract is not binding on you in such and such a way. In a similar sort of way, that's what this language indicates. You're claiming to follow Christ. Well, if you're claiming to follow Christ, you're in a covenant, and that entails that you're going to live a certain sort of way. These things are binding on you. Uh, and these things are not. And that's what's going on in church discipline, that the, the community is saying, you're claiming to follow Christ, but you're not walking that way, and so we are binding. We're saying, this is binding on you. Or we're loosing and saying, this is not um, binding on you. And Jesus is essentially saying, if it's not, notice the whole process. This is a long process you go through this process, and Jesus is saying, your judgment as the church, as the assembly, is backed by heaven. It's not a willy-nilly, you can say whatever you want and guarantee it's going to be backed by heaven, but as you look through the scriptures, as you pray, as you together work and, uh, on this individual if you bind or loose, it's going to be backed. Whatever judgment you make, it's going to be backed by heaven. And he reinforces it again, verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you, uh, two, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That's just another way of saying if you bind or loose, it's going to be bound in heaven. The two here are the two witnesses that agree that, yes, we have seen evidence of this person's refusal. Uh, we are praying in all of this. We're asking, Father, bring them back. But if you don't bring them back, here's the judgment we're going to have to make. And would you back our, our judgment on this? And there's a confidence that if you're doing this, going through the process, you're doing it prayerfully, you've got the backing of heaven. Jesus supports it once more in verse 20. For where two or three, that's the two or three witnesses, are gathered into my name, there I am among them. And that's the picture of everything's kind of riding on these two or three witnesses. They're the ones that confronted the person individually. It's not that every single person in the church is going to confront this individual. And yet everything's kind of riding on the testimony of these two or three witnesses. But when those two or three witnesses join together in the assembly, which bears the name of Jesus... Jesus is there in that assembly, and he's backing the decision. That's what this text means. So this, this text basically lays out the basic process of church discipline. It is a process. It's not just the end point of saying you're out of the church. It is a whole process of loving and prayerful confrontation of a fellow disciple. So this is one of our key texts in defining what church discipline is. The other, I said, was 1 Corinthians 5, which is another text we've looked at a little bit. So go ahead and turn there, and once we visit that text, then we will be, able, we will be in a position to define what do we mean by church uh, discipline. So 1 Corinthians 5. 
And you'll see, what's amazing is you'll see a lot of language that's similar with Matthew 18 because Paul is applying the same principles. So 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's talking to the Corinthian church. He says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So Paul is saying, you've got a guy in the middle of the church. He's among you. And he is living a sexually immoral lifestyle. He's living in contradiction to what it means to be a follower of Christ. And you guys, you're saying, well, we're being tolerant. We're accepting this man into our midst. We're being tolerant with this guy. He's like, no, you're, you're being arrogant. You're being arrogant because Christ told you what it looks like to live. And you guys actually need to mourn. Not just the individual needs to mourn, that needs to happen, but the whole assembly needs to mourn because they're not dealing with this person. And what he's going to say is essentially you're defaming Christ's name. You're arrogant, but you ought to mourn and you, got to, you ought to remove this person from among you. Again, it's the idea of the inside and the outside. Here's this person inside the church. He needs to be, in this case, be brought outside the church, be removed from among you. So church discipline, again, that ultimate step is removal from the church, revocation of church membership. And he goes on. For, although, for though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, as, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, again, this is the idea of the assembly. Jesus has given the stewardship authority of the keys to the assembly of the church, the members, together, when they come together in the Lord's name. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, when we assemble together, we do so under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in his name, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. The, the church has that power, that authority, when it is gathered. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, what's going on there? What is this handing over to Satan idea? Well, if you understand Paul, and well, the, the New Testament and the scriptures generally, you understand that we all begin life not innocent. We all begin life as guilty, and we all begin life in the realm of Satan. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says it also in Colossians. He talks about how you've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Everyone starts off in the domain of Satan. You may think you're living your own life, and you may think, well, I'm just doing whatever I want. Well, if you're doing that, and Paul says in Ephesians 2, you are under the prince of the power of the air. You are under the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. You're, we all start into the domain of Satan. And Paul, like I said, in Colossians, he frames salvation. When we repent and return our allegiance from sin and self and entrust ourselves to Christ, we are transferred. He uses that language. We're transferred from that domain of Satan into the kingdom of his beloved son. Or to put it in terms that Paul is thinking about in 1 Corinthians 5, that you were brought from this domain of the common, of the, the domain of Satan, you were brought into the realm of the holy, and that is displayed in the local church. Now, if a person, as what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 5, if he contradicts his profession with his action, and you have to go all the way in church discipline, then what are you doing? You're doing the exact reverse. That person is getting removed from the assembly and handed back over into the realm of Satan. But notice why. Why is this happening? Even, even here, he's like, man, this is harsh. Well, notice what's going on, though. For the destruction, why do we do this? You were to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's his sinful nature. The thing that's causing you to go after sin, even though you're professing Christ, it's ultimately this, this flesh that's in you. 
That's what needs to be dealt with. So we're handing you back over into that realm to really essentially experience the consequences of your sin, but notice the motivation. Notice what's next. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's the day of judgment, the final day when everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and will be justified or condemned. So the church is exercising discipline for the benefit of this person. The discipline has to go, uh, it, essentially it's this, it's the same thing in Matthew five and, or Matthew 18 and, and 1 Corinthians 5. It's the church sh- taking the guy by the shoulders and saying, wake up, wake up. You're on the path to destruction. You will, you're claiming to follow Christ, but you're not living like it. And you can't think that you're going to come before the judgment seat of Christ and be justified if you keep living this day. We're warning you. Even that ultimate step is a warning. If you keep following this, you're not on the narrow path into the kingdom of heaven. You're on the broad path to destruction. It's a warning, and it's a warning for the good of the person. So that person might wake up and say, I need to, I need to turn around. I need to follow Christ so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul goes on, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, what this is, is you take a, you'd have a lump of dough for a week, and it ferments if you do this over time. Those of you who make sourdough, like my wife, they understand this. You, the dough ferments, and you have this starter, and it's got yeast. It's got natural yeast in it, leaven. And you would take that, and you would take that from the previous week to make your bread for the next week to rise. It has an effect on the whole dough. And Paul is drawing this analogy and saying, look, You've got a little leaven, someone who you're tolerating among the assembly, and it's going to have an effect on the whole body. So what do you do? Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This ties in with what we were saying last week. Remember, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper uh, as the Passover meal. This is what Paul is alluding to here. He's alluding to the fact that in um, in the institution of Passover, if you were to look at Exodus 12 and Exodus 13, they would celebrate the Passover, but then in the original Passover, they had to leave so quickly that they couldn't leaven their bread. So they had to leave really quick. And so not only were you supposed to celebrate Passover, but then the next week was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, celebrating God's rescue of his people from slavery, from sin, from the domain of darkness, to be and become his people. But here what Paul is saying, remember the first exodus, yes, but we're part of the second exodus. We're part of the ultimate exodus. Christ is the ultimate Passover lamb that has died for his people to rescue them out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God. And so you can't tolerate evil in your midst. If you do, it's going to affect the whole lump. And I think by implication here, and we'll see this even stronger in a couple sentences, but he's, I think he's alluding to the Lord's Supper. Let's see that as we continue to, to read. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. You you can't disassociate yourself from sexually immoral, greedy, swindler people because the only way you're going to not associate with them is to go out of the world entirely. He's saying, no, 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 I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in the church. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate. Again, the idea of gathering, being together with someone not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. When church discipline takes its course, what are you doing? You're removing them from the assembly, yes, but you're not associating with them at all. Now, some people take this to mean, well, just not eating in general. You can't even have them into your home for a meal. That may be true, but it certainly means that you don't 
you bar them from the Lord's table. Because what is the Lord's table? You're coming together, associating together, eating a meal, a very special meal, the Passover meal, celebrating Christ's ultimate Passover, his ultimate sacrifice that has made us a people. So not only is church discipline removing you from the church, it's removing you from the Lord's table. It's removing you from the Lord's table. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you, which you'll notice in your Bible, that last statement, purge the evil person from among you, is in quotes. He's quoting Deuteronomy 17, which uses a similar principle. Two or three witnesses, someone's walking in contradiction to following Yahweh. Uh, in that case, you execute the person. Now, we're not talking about execution at all, but it's the same principle. The pers- get the person out of the church. Get the person out of the church. Purge the evil person from among you. Notice, too, what Paul is saying in this. Who can you judge in this way? Who can you apply this judgment to those inside the church? In other words, you can only church discipline members, which ties together with everything that we've seen so far. Think of it this way, and especially, uh, especially what I want you to know is it's, the church discipline is two things. It's removal from the body, yes, but it's removal, it's barring from the Lord's Supper. Think of it this way. If someone can take the Lord's Supper, let's just sit, any, whoever happens to take the Lord's Supper, if, anyone can take the, if someone can take the Lord's Supper, then they're able to be disciplined, because if you're going to be disciplined, you're going to be removed from the Lord's Supper. But if you're able to be disciplined, then they are a member because Paul says, I can only judge those inside the church. It corresponds with what we were saying last week, that the Lord's Supper is primarily for members of the local church because it corresponds with what's going over in discipline. So what do we mean by church discipline? Let's sum it up. Let's sum it up. I'll give you another definition. Church discipline is what? It's a process. It's not a one-and-done act. It's a process of confronting a professing disciple of Christ and local church member. You can only judge those inside the church who is persisting in sin. Church discipline culminates either in the restoration of the repentant individual. That's what this is designed for. It's restoration. It is discipline for the purpose of restoration or if, God forbid, it goes this far, but it does in cases, or in barring the person from partaking in the Lord's Supper and removing the person from membership, all for the good of the individual and the holiness of the local church. Let me read it again. Church discipline is a process of confronting a professing disciple of Christ and local church member who is persisting in sin. Church discipline culminates either in the restoration of the repentant individual or in barring the person from partaking in the Lord's Supper and removing the person from membership, all for the good of the individual and the holiness of the local church. That is what we see in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. Now, that leads right into the next question that we need to answer. If that's the process, if that's the, if that's the practice of church discipline, that's what we mean but when we talk about church discipline— What are the purposes for church discipline? What are the purposes for church discipline? We've already touched on this, but let's back up a a step. We know from the scriptures that God's love and discipline go hand in hand. Hebrews 12, uh, 5 through 11, talks about how the Lord disciplines those he loves. That's even the Old Testament in Proverbs. The Lord disciplines those he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. So we often think of church discipline, it's like, oh, that's just harsh. It's, it's not loving. Actually, it is loving because God disciplines those he loves. He disciplines those he loves. Even Jesus in Revelation, uh, Jesus in Revelation 3, 14 through 22 talks about those I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. 
And he's talking to a church and to individuals that are walking in sin. He's essentially saying, be zealous or repent. I love you, so I'm disciplining you. So you got to understand that when we think about church discipline, God's, God has instituted it, and God's heart of love is behind it. God has instituted it, and God's heart of love is behind it. What's it for? Restoration, first and foremost. We want the person back on the narrow path, in, heading into the narrow gate, leading into the kingdom of heaven. Turn to Galatians 6. It's just a couple pages over from where we were in 1 Corinthians. Galatians 6.1 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We want restoration. This is part of being a member where we oversee. It's not just me, Jim, and Steve overseeing the body. It is the members overseeing the discipleship of one another to help them to follow Christ. And if someone is caught in a transgression, we are working together as an organism, as a body, to see that person restored. To see the person restored. It's amazing. Even uh, there's an example up at our church in uh, Spokane where an individual went all the way. He was put out of the church, and he was put out of the church for like 20 years. And God used it. God used it over time to confront that individual to where he said, he knew he was wrong, and God used it to bring him back, and he was eventually restored. And we, rest we restored him with rejoicing. After 20 years, it works. God's a good father who knows how to discipline his children to bring them back. Restoration, restoration. If at any one of those stages in Matthew 15, someone repents, we welcome them with open arms. We forgive and we rejoice that a lost sheep, a straying sheep has come back. So that's one purpose for church discipline, restoration out of God's love. This is a means that he uses. And then a second, and we saw this in 1 Corinthians 5, is the purity of the church. Cleanse out the old leaven. Remember that God is glorified not just in an individual professing faith. He's glorified in a pure, holy body, uh, an embassy, a, a temple, a priesthood displaying his glory and displaying his character to a watching world. So if the person's not going to be restored, then... We need to purify the church. And that also functions as a warning, doesn't it? If you have to eventually remove someone from the Lord's table and remove someone from membership, it's a warning. It's a warning to those who remain. Uh, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 5. We'll read that passage in a little bit. But he says, so that people may stand in fear. This is, this is the church saying, if you keep going the way you're going, you're going to head towards judgment. So we remove them, and it's for the good of, it's not only for the purity of the church, it's also for a warning to others. If you follow in the same track, you, you, you need to be afraid. You need to be warned. So those are the purposes of church discipline. Restoration, first and foremost, and then purity of the church, which also serves as a warning to others. Which brings up another question. What are the prerequisites for church discipline? What are the prerequisites for church discipline? And here's where I want to introduce a category to you. Remember what Jesus told at the, said at the end of Matthew. Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. And if you think about what is discipleship, we've been talking about this in Matthew, it is being a follower and learner of Christ. It is being a follower and learner of Christ. That's why Jesus says you not only baptize, but you teach. The whole life of discipleship is learning and learning how to love and follow and, uh, and obey Christ better. 
So really, you could think of that as formative discipline. You can think of the life of discipleship as formative discipline. You understand this if you're a parent. I'm not a parent, but I understand enough of parenting to know that this is true. Uh, I was on the receiving end of it anyway, right? That you have two types of discipline. You have formative discipline in which you're saying, here's the way you walk. Here's, it's training. Uh, here's the way you walk. Here's the way you grow. Here's the way you behave. That's formative discipline. That's the life of a disciple, of the community of disciples. We're helping one another to learn to follow Christ better. You can see this in this kind of discipleship or discipline in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4.11, familiar passage, we keep coming back to it because it's so important. Ephesians 4.11 says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So all the saints do the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ, the church, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body builds itself up in love. It helps one another to grow in following Christ. It helps one another. The members are helping one another. They're the ones doing the ministry, the work of ministry, to help grow in maturity in following Christ. That's what we mean by formative discipline. Helping one another to have a culture of discipleship to help follow Christ better. That's formative discipline. And you want to have that formative discipline in place before you have the second category, which is what we've been talking about this morning, corrective discipline. Corrective discipline. That's what church discipline is. It's, it's the kind of discipline you do is when your child gets off track. Okay, I'm training you. Uh, okay, you did exactly what I told you not to do. What do you do? Discipline them. And that's also training as well, but it's training in a corrective way, which is exactly what church discipline is doing. But the prerequisite you want before that is a good framework of formative discipline. You can see this elsewhere. We saw it in Ephesians 4. You can see it in Hebrews. Uh, Turn over to Hebrews. Hebrews 3.12. He's writing to Christians who are undergoing suffering. He They need to persevere. He's telling you, you need to persevere. That's the main call, really, in Hebrews. But we get this snippet in um, Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What are we supposed to be doing as a body? Exhorting one another every day as long as it's called today so that we don't have to get to the hardness caused by the deceitfulness of sin, so that we don't have to get to the corrective discipline. We need formative discipline. We need relationships where we know one another. We know intimate nitty-gritty details of our lives so that we can help each other and exhort one another, keep going, keep following Christ so that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, so that corrective discipline is not necessary. Hebrews 10, 24, uh, Hebrews 10, 23, similar idea. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's formative discipline. Why do we gather? To stir up one another to love and good works, to exhort, to encourage, to challenge one another when necessary. Why? To make it to the end, to persevere 
until the end. That is formative discipline, a culture where we know, where the members know one another, they take responsibility for one another. That's the idea that it's not just me and Jesus. I'm actually, as a member, responsible for the person across the room. I'm responsible for understanding who they are, knowing where they're at, uh, encouraging them and exhorting them and loving them and speaking truth to them in any sort of way. That's formative discipline. That's a culture of discipleship. That's what membership means. It's not ultimately the process. It's that culture that we want. So we've seen what the practice of church discipline is. We've seen what the purposes for church discipline are. We've seen what the prerequisites for church discipline are. What's the protocol of church discipline? John MacArthur would be proud. I used a bunch of Ps. Anyway, what is the protocol for church discipline? What I mean by this is, how do you initiate the process? What does the process kind of look like? What, what kind of sins are we talking about here uh, when we in- initiate church discipline? Well, in a certain sense, remember what Matthew 18 started with. It started with a one-on-one conversation. There should be one-on-one conversations confronting one another fairly regularly. If we have a healthy culture of knowing one another, of encouraging one another, and exhorting one another, that should be kind of a regular basis, right? Because the goal of that is, okay, get back on the path. Oh, I was veering a little bit. Okay, get back on the path. Uh, there's that sense. But what you see is when the church discipline process proceeds to the, the different levels, it's for persistent and unrepentant sins. It's when you get a hard-hearted refusal, I'm not listening, I'm going my own way, and there's no repentance. So there's, there's definitely, when it reaches that culminating step of removal from the Lord's Supper and from the membership, it's for rep- persistent and unrepentant sins. Uh, public sins certainly uh, are part of this, there are certain sins that, like, ooh, we need to deal, that's a very public sin, we need to deal with that swiftly because it was public. But I want to also give you some other examples. Like I said, there are other passages in the New Testament that, are, um, that allude to church discipline. One of, the issue, one of the things that's mentioned for church discipline is divisiveness. Uh, Titus 3.10. Turn there, you can just listen. Titus 3.10 says this, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. That's even like a shortcut method. If there's division, well, that's that's deadly because what Christ wants is a unified body that's following him and loving one another. So if there's someone divisive, you got to deal with it swiftly. So divisiveness is one of those things. Um, Hopefully this isn't a shocker. Heresy. If someone is speaking heresy, then we need to discipline this person. Turn to John, 2 John. That's a book you haven't turned to in a while. 2 John. Near the end of the Bible. But John speaks to this issue. 2 John 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourself so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So certainly heresy. We see that there. This is a person who's going on. They're not abiding in the teaching of Christ. You see something similar in uh, First and Second Timothy, where Paul talks about, he uses that phrase again, handing someone over to Satan because they were speaking error. They were speaking heresy. Here's a surprising one. We don't have to go to this now, but in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15, there's another example of church discipline, and it's for being idle. It's for being idle and not working with your hands. You can be church disciplined for that. So this is kind of like, it's like ordinary stuff that gets taken to an extreme when someone's persistently and unrepentantly walking in sin. 
you can look at that one later. That was 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15, for being idle or disorderly. You can be church disciplined for that. And here's the other one. This is important. Elders. Elders can be church disciplined. 1 Timothy 5. First Timothy five, nineteen. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So we see the same standard applied, two or three witnesses. Don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those, the elders, who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Elders aren't exempt from this. In fact, it's, it's a higher standard in a lot of ways because we're representing, we're representing the body and we're representing Christ. And so, can a member bring a charge against an elder? Absolutely, and should if there is impropriety. There's still the same principles of two or three witnesses, but elders can be disciplined. And that's a comfort to me. See, this is the thing about church discipline. We tend to think, oh, that's harsh, that's unloving. No, it is a grace. Church discipline is a grace that God uses for his people. I am glad to know that if I start going sideways, I've got a bunch of brothers and sisters, a bunch of fellow members who are going to call me out, and you'd better if I start going astray. And that's true for all of us. It's not just me and Jesus. I'm responsible for my brothers and sisters in the body. I want to care for them. I want to help them grow. And if they start going sideways, I want to help them get back on the path because I love them, because I love them, and I want them to make it to the end to be with Jesus forever. So, as we conclude, as we tie this together, what are some takeaways? What are some things that we could kind of in summary say based on what we've learned about church discipline? Well, first would be this. We need to pursue a culture of discipleship, don't we? And what we mean by that is that, that formative discipline of knowing one another, of, lo- um, of loving one another, of correcting one another, of rebuking one another, and of encouraging one another. We need that culture. That's the prerequisite. That's that formative discipline. We need to pursue a culture of discipleship. We need to pursue going deep with each other so that we know and can help one another to keep following Jesus to the end. Here's another thing we can say. We need to take sin seriously. Take sin seriously in yourself and in others. Take sin seriously in yourself and in others. Not in a self-righteous way. That's what Jesus was warning against in Matthew 7. Don't judge like the Pharisees and scribes do in a self-righteous way, but in a way that acknowledges, I am a sinner. I am only rescued by God's grace. I don't want to see anyone miss out on that same grace. And so I'm concerned about sin in my own heart, first and foremost, take the log out of my own eye, but I'm also concerned about the sin in other people's lives because I don't want them to miss out on the grace of God. We take sin seriously in ourselves and others. So if you're seeing, I would just even say this this morning, if you see a pattern of unrepentant sin in your life, no one else knows about it, this is going to be hard, but you need to talk to other people. You need to talk to other people to experience this grace of having your brothers and sisters help you bear your burdens to follow Christ. Repent from sin, entrust yourself to Christ anew, and lean into the means of grace of the local church. We've learned anything over this series, it's that the local church is a means of grace that God uses in the life of believers. And then this, submit yourself to membership in the local church for the grace of accountability. Really? You might be sitting here and thinking, well, if you can only discipline members, I'm not a member. I don't have to be disciplined. Well, friend, you're missing out on the grace of accountability. 
You need to submit yourself to membership in the local church for the grace of accountability where we can help you to grow, where we can, we can encourage you to follow Christ. And if you go sideways, we can correct you. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe um, you, you're like, whoa, church discipline. Uh, that's, that's scary. Well, we can talk about that, but, but maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you realize, I don't know Christ, I'm just kind of here visiting, popped in here. Well, remember what we talked about, what Paul talks about. We all start in the domain of Satan. We are all naturally headed for judgment. But here's the good news of the gospel. Because Christ was that ultimate Passover lamb, because he died for his people's sins, he rescued them out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so I would call you, repent and entrust yourself to Christ. No matter what you've done, you can be rescued out of that domain of sin, darkness, and Satan to know Christ, to know him as the treasure of your soul through repentance and faith. And then it's not just, okay, I've been rescued out individually. I'm rescued into a body of brothers and sisters who are going to care for me, who are going to love me, who are going to encourage me and help me make it to the end. And just in summary, as we close out this series, we've said it multiple weeks, but I want to say it again. These are difficult things. They're not easy things to talk through and work through. If you're struggling or having difficulty, come talk with us. Come talk with me or Steve. Um, Jim's not here today, but come talk with us. We love having these conversations. You don't need to feel intimidated. You don't need to feel any of that. We love you, and we want to talk with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give the grace of discipline, that you discipline those you love. We just pray that we would, as you've entrusted to us this tool, that we would use it wisely, we would use it in the way you would have it be used for the good of your people, for the glory of your name, for the purity of your church, but ultimately so that you might be glorified through having a visible, distinct, and definable people in the world. To you be all glory and praise. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for rescuing us as your people. We long for you to come again, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, and reign. Gather your universal church that we might enjoy you and enjoy one another for all eternity. We ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.